welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. My name is Robbo, I'm here with Cheeto. Hello. And on this episode we're going to um, discuss some of our favourite movie villains. So I'm going to go first. Um, my first one is Harry Lyme. And he appears in the 1949 film The Third Man, directed by Carol Reed, and it's played by Orson Welles. The film stars Joseph Cotton as Holly Martins, and he arrives in post-Second World War Vienna, um, which, like Berlin, has been divided between the Allies uh, to American, British, French and Soviet sectors. And he's seeking his childhood friend, Harry Lyon, was offered him a job. Mm. Um, he gets there, he's told that Harry's died in a car accident, he's been run over by a car. He goes to Lyman's funeral and he meets Major Calloway, played by Trevor Howard, who's a military police officer. Uh, Major Calloway informs him that Lyman was involved in the black market, stealing penicillin from the military hospitals, diluting it and then selling it on the black market. And he was responsible for the death of a lot of children. And he initially doesn't believe it. Yeah. Um, he starts digging and he realises that there's a lot, bit of suspicion around Harry's death. The fact that the, the car that ran him over was his own car. Mm. Yeah. And the three people who witnessed it were all friends of his. Uh, and then one night, um, Holly sees uh, Harry on the street and he pursues him and Harry escapes from him down the sewers. Um, and then he, he manages to, uh, to set up a meeting between them and they... Mm meet and they go on to the ride the Vienna's Ferris wheel where Lyme indirectly threatens him and he sort of reveals the full extent of his ruthlessness. Um he sort of still he offers him a job again. Yeah. Um and he looks down from the, the Ferris wheel and he's saying, look, every every dot down there meaning people, they're worth twenty pounds. That's how he, he valued people's lives. Mm. Um so he shows absolutely no remorse for what he's done. Yeah, but he's he's very charismatic as well. But you can you can sense there's a sinister undertone there. Um, and his approach is very jovial and friendly, but he's he's completely immoral. He's got no regret for what he's done, and he just cares about himself. Mm. Um, and so in the end, Martins agrees to help Calloway um, catch Lime, and there's a fantastic chase scene under the sewers of Vienna. Mm. Um, and where uh, I'm not going to give away the ending <laughs> but yeah so that's why he's a movie villain really just because he is just just has no remorse for what he's done he's been responsible for the death of a lot of children in yeah. hospital and when you said that he comes across as a really nice person but I don't yeah. think he's just Purely insane. It, it, yeah, when he talks, to, you know, he talks to you. He's very jovial, very charismatic. You yeah, know, he's allowed, he, he, he's able to get people to do what he wants. Mm. Um, he's able to manipulate people, but in the end, he's just just a, a, a moral person and has no regard for anybody else. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, if you get a chance to watch that, I would watch that. It's it, it's a classic film, and it's it's always on like top lists of. You know the best films. Yeah, I like so I've watched a few Orson Welles. Yeah. Okay. Um, my first is Hans Lander. Um, 
Hans Lander is the main antagonist in the 2009 Quentin Tarantino film Inglourious Bastards. Um, he's portrayed by Austrian actor Christoph Waltz. Uh, and actually, for, it, for this particular performance, he won uh, the Academy Award for Best Sporting Actor, um, the Golden Globe Award for Best Sporting Actor, and the Best Actor Award at the 2009 Cannes Film Festival. And Inglourious Bastards is, is one of my favourite war films. Um, it's quite a simple plot, really. It's about um, Hans Lander. Is, he leads a, a battalion of, of soldiers that uh, are round up the Jews to take them off to concentration camps and, and executing them as well. And uh, Brad Pitt leads a, another platoon of, of soldiers, of actual Jews, to go down and hunt and kill Hitler. And um, it's like the general gist of the movie. Like I said, I won't give it too much away. You have to go and see this film. Uh, the reason why he's on my list is because of, you know, of course he's a Nazi and he plays a Nazi so well. Um, he has that balance of being both purely evil and charming at the same time. And that's like, for me personally, like I said, that's the perfect balance. And that's what I love in a, in a villain. Um, for me, this makes me hate the character even more. But because you want to hate him, he's... You know, he's a Nazi, but you can't help but sort of like him. Um, and you are almost, not ashamed, but disappointed that you do like the character because, like I said, he's he's probably the best part about Inglourious Bastards itself. But yeah, overall, um, Waltz puts in a legendary performance um, and he was actually a, a, an unknown actor. Um, he was born in Austria. He moved to Germany when he was younger and he'd done like a few, he started acting out there, done TV shows, various films over there. Um, and like I said, he, he was unknown in, in most of Europe and North America. But yeah, Tarantino definitely got his casting choice right. You know, it was quite a, a weird one when, you know, who's this Christoph Waltz? Um, and this just a testament to Christoph Waltz because like I said, he, he's done this and he also, of course, done um, won the Oscar in Django Unchained as well. But yeah, um, these are the reasons why Hans Lander is on my list. Like I said, he is hands down the best part about Inglourious Bastards for me and um, he definitely heightens the movie for me so that's that's number one on my yeah, list choice, yeah. <clears throat> um, my next choice is uh, a character called Eric Quaylen and he's played by John Lithgow in the 1993 film Cliffhanger directed by Rennie Harlan it's a favourite of ours isn't it? and I actually watched this again yesterday did this you was, yeah yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, really, it was a, it was supposed to be sort of a starring vehicle for Sylvester Stallone, who plays Gabe Walker, who's a, a mountain ranger in the Colorado Rockies. And it starts off in typical fashion when Gabe and his, his girlfriend, who's the helicopter pilot, they're dispatched to rescue their friend Hal Tucker and his girlfriend Sarah after Hal suffers an injury and it strands them on a, on a peak in the Colorado Rockies. Um, as they're trying to rescue Sarah, part of her harness breaks... And then Gabe tries to rescue her, but she slips and he grabs her hand wearing a glove. And it's that moment, you know, it's that kind of typical action film where, yeah, you know, a hand slips out and she falls to her death. And so Gabe, overcome with guilt, decides to take extended leave. And then the film jumps to eight months later when he returns to the ranger station. He's there to gather his remaining possessions and he persuades his girlfriend to leave with him. And so while they're there, they receive a distress call from a group of stranded climbers. Yeah. <clears throat> and Hal goes to help them. And Jesse persuades Gabe uh, to go and help out. Mm. 
And whereas, you know, Hallie's still bitter towards Gabe over uh, Sarah's death. And when they find the climbers, they discover that the distress call was fake and they're taken prisoner by a ruthless gang of international thieves led by the psychotic. And he's, his background is his British former military intelligence operative, Eric Quaylen, and the surviving group of thieves. And what they've done is they've managed to carry out a mid-air heist and they've stolen three suitcases full of uncirculated bills valuing $100 million. And unfortunately, their, well, I say not unfortunately, their escape plan backfired when they were supposed to kill everybody on board the plane, but uh, they left an FBI agent alive and he shot and damaged the hydraulics on their jet and they crashed into the mountain. And so what they do is they've got a tracking device on each case um, and they get Gabe and Hal to locate the cases. And that's basically the, the, um, the gist of the story. Yeah. Um, but what makes him a... He's very funny. He's, yeah, he, I he think, is. you know, uh, depending on what type of film you're in, I think he de- determines your performance mm. as a bad guy, and I think he got it absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit over the top, a little bit campy. It, it works for that type of film. What yeah, it's going for, he's it? got the British accent. Yeah, but he's absolutely ruthless, and you know everyone on this team probably hates him. Does you know is but is uh, scared of him to the point that you know he he's he treats them all like idiots. Yeah, you know he's, yeah. he's got this <laughs> he looks air, down on them. Yeah, he's he? got this air of superiority, mm. uh, and the fact he actually kills his own girlfriend. Yeah, as well, to, and he's. He's not beyond killing anybody to get what he wants. Um, so that's why I've chosen him. Um, probably not not on a lot of lists of, of mm. villains, but I just think, yeah, I think his performance really does add to the film. And f- for me, um, John Lithgow really does uh, take... When, when you're in a film with Slice Stallone, of course he's going to take the, the front running, but... Yeah. John Lithgow really does like take over this film, isn't it? Yeah. It is a very much as much as a John Lithgow film as it is yeah. a, a Sly Sloan film as well, yeah, which definitely. is just a testament to how good he is in this. Yeah. Again, it's like I say, you know, um, yeah, it's an action film. It's supposed to be like, you know, it's it's not going to make you think a lot, but right. I think he's he's pitched his his performance really well. Yeah, at that at the level, I think that it needs to be. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Right, um, my next villain is uh, Michael Myers. Um, Michael Myers is the main antagonist in the 1978 John Carpenter slasher film Halloween. And he also reappears as the main antagonist in all of its sequels. Um, he is portrayed by American writer, not actor, writer, Nick Castle, who is, uh, is his performance in Michael Myers that I'm going to base base my ranking on in this list you know so you're based on the original yeah the original film, film. Right. um now once again it's another very simple film um some guy snaps kills his sister gets sent away to a um to a hospital escapes goes back starts killing again that's literally it um yeah, this all happened on halloween didn't it yeah so that's halloween the night significance of that's why it's called that. halloween yeah um but the reason why he's on my list is because I, th- I can't think of any other character who embodies just pure, like, almost caveman-like evil. Um, like, there's there's, pe- there's there's characters who have, like, evil tendencies, but, like, 
Michael is just pure evil. Um, the reason why I think this is because like one day, like I said, he kills his sister, and from that day on, he is like evil incarnate to me. The fact that there's no explanation why he went on his murder spree, it's just pure evil. Um, that's what's really fascinating. This is what makes him such a scary antagonist to me. Like the Terminators, who both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Pat, uh, Robert Patrick base their performances on, um, Michael Myers is just unstoppable. He gets stabbed in the torso and gets up. You know, he, he gets shot six times and flees amongst everything else that happens to this. Um, in the original, he's almost supernatural. He can even show up at any time in any place. Like, lastly, the, the mask as well is the scariest thing that I've ever laid my eyes on. Um, the modified Captain Kirk mask is a blank slate in which the viewer can project anything onto it. Um, it's emotionless. There's some really black eyes and they really do stare into your soul. And yeah, like I said, just the, the pure fact that he is he is the chassis and, and what drives him is his evil within. There's just no explanation for why he does it, is there? Mm. Uh, I know they try and do that later down the line in the sequels, but I disregard that. And yeah, he just snaps one day, goes on the killing spree for no reason. And um, these are the reasons why Michael Myers on my list, because like I said, I just think he is just the most pure, bare bones evil you can be as a character. Just because, like, like I said before, some some villains they have their they have their reasons for being doing what they do. Where Michael just doesn't, he just kills because he kills. That's what he's brought on earth to do. Yeah. So, and then partway through the film, you got the introduction of uh, Doctor Loomis, mm. played by Donald Pleasance. He's the guy from the Insane Asylum, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's Michael's doctor. Yeah, and he then is the one who. Is then becomes the main protagonist. He's trying to he's trying to stop Michael. Mm. And this thing that also helps because uh, the only words that come out of Donald Pleasant's mouth is how evil Michael is, yeah. and he's telling everyone like, um, I remember when uh, they lose Michael, he's like the evil has gone. He doesn't even associate any like human words with Michael, mm. and that just helps to to show how evil Michael yeah, is. Definitely, yeah. So, yeah, no. Good all right, so moving on, my next choice is from Terminator, 1984, James Cameron film, yeah. um, and that's the actual Terminator of the title. Um, he's given the designation T-800, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, it's a kind of post-apocalyptical film, but then it's set in, <laughs> in, in the modern day. Yeah. So essentially in the future, there's an artificial intelligence defense system called Skynet. It becomes self-aware and it initiates a nuclear holocaust. So this is in the future. Mm -hmm. A group of resistance fighters led by John Connor are on the verge of victory against Skynet and its army of machines. When Skynet kind of cheats a bit, he sends a Terminator, which is a killing machine with a powerful endoskeleton surrounded by a layer of living tissue, so it appears human. Uh, he sends it back in time to kill John's mother, Sarah. The Resistance finds and captures the time machine and sends back Kyle Reese, one of the Freedom Fighters, to prevent the Terminator killing Sarah. So that's kind of the gist of the, the story. Yeah. Um, you know, the Terminator's not really evil. It's just the way it's programmed. Mm. But what makes it such a great antagonist is, again, it, it's like the Michael Myers thing. Yeah. It will not stop. It's a, a machine surrounded by flesh, so mm. it, it can blend in. Um, it can actually mimic voices. It's constantly learning. So it is the ultimate killing machine, killing isn't machine. it? Yeah. Um, and there's a line in the film when, when Kyle says to her, she, uh, to Sarah, 
He says, listen and understand that Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you're dead. And just for that, that just embodies yeah. what it is. And, and it just, yeah. it's a killing machine. That's, yeah. what, it's, that's what it's programmed to do. Uh, and, you know, it's trying to kill Sarah, but it, it does end up killing people throughout the whole film in, in its mm. pursuit of Sarah. Well, that's the thing. The, there's, a, there's a scene where, because there's a few different Sarah Connors. Yeah. And just how... I yeah, the, the 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 actual um, the records and documentation that are very in future. Um, it it knows the, the city she lives mm. in, but doesn't know where. So it's basically going through the phone book and, and turning up on people's doorsteps and killing anybody called Sarah Connor. Literally, he he says, "Are you Sarah Connor?" Yeah. She goes, "Yes," and he doesn't even say anything. He yeah. just opens the door and it starts shooting her, her. point blank, kills yeah. her. Same with the um, other other girl. Yeah. So. so like I said, he's, he's he's like you said with Michael Myers, he just is yeah. got one thing and one thing only, and yeah. that's to kill. And you know, it goes through a series of events where it's it's involved. In a, it's in a car crash. It gets in a fire. It's blown up, but it just keeps coming. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to spoil the end, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that's why I've I've chosen um, chosen that as mm. one of my movie villains. Well, this um leads on to my next villain. Uh, it's the T-1000. Now, the T-1000 is the main antagonist in the 1991 James Cameron film, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, he's portrayed by American actor Robert Patrick. Uh, and following the events of, of the, the original, um, a T-800 is sent back in time, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then there's a T-1000 um, sent back in time, who's a upgraded liquid metal version of the T-800. And uh, spoiler alerts, it's been long enough. The T-800 has been sent back in time to protect John Connor, a young John Connor, by John Connor himself, while the T-1000 T has been sent back in time to kill uh, John Connor. Um, the reason why he's on my list is because he is generally one of the most in intimidating antagonists of all time. Uh, the T-800 in The Terminator is intimidating because of Arnold Schwarzenegger's sheer size and presence alone. Like you said, he... He, he can't be bargained with, you know, he doesn't have um, any conscience almost, you know, he just is there to be killed. And like I said, it's his sheer size and presence, you know, he's hulking. Because in Terminator 2, John, John Connor's a, a teenager. Yeah, he's a teenager, yeah, um, yeah. And Sarah's been, after the event of Terminator, she's been sent to a psychiatric yeah. hospital because nobody believes... Believes her about Skynet. About Skynet and the Terminator and everything. Um, and... So he breaks out of hospital, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. T eight hundred, and they go on the run from the T one thousand. From the T one, and also the, the authorities yeah. as well. But uh, the T one thousand is intimidating because he's an upgraded Terminator. Like I said, he was made of liquid metal. This literally makes him basically unstoppable. You see countless times where he gets shot, it just goes through him, or he gets stabbed, it goes through him, and uh, he's just basically a vessel. But where the T eight hundred is a, um, you can touch him, you can feel him. He's a he's a still uh, carcass uh, that can be damaged with like getting shot or whatever. You just can't do that with with liquid metal. Um, like I said, this makes him unstoppable, and it can change its appearance as well, can it? Yeah, it changes it can appearance, mold into other other people. Yeah, they can things. like like with the T eight hundred, it can also mimic voices. Um, in Terminator 2, he just keeps on coming back time after time, and it's only when he's teamed up on 
by another tier 100 when he's finally defeated. But like I said, Robert Patrick, just his performance as well, really do, he really does embody evil. Like his first scene when he when he um, comes in, because almost they set it up like the T-800 is the bad guy and like the T-1000 is another Michael Bean. But just his, his face, he's, he's got this scouring look and he just looks evil, doesn't he? Yeah. He doesn't look like a nice person no. whatsoever because like I said, he's not he's not the biggest guy, is he, no. Robert Patrick? But just the, the, all these um, factors that I've just mentioned is the reason why yeah. um, I just find him so intimidating. And like I said, I'd rather come up against a T-800 than a T-1000. But yeah, like I said, these yeah. are the, the reasons why the T-1000 is on my list, so... And obviously the interesting thing about that is the fact that T-800 has a complete switch in... You now, whereas in Terminator, he's there to kill Sarah Connor. Yeah. He's there to protect John Connor. Mm. And like Sarah says, you know, what made him the ultimate sort of killing machine in the first film makes him the ultimate protector in the second film. Yeah. Because he will not stop. You know, he'll sacrifice himself for John. And that's what, um, like, with the... Uh, in the film... He's almost like a father figure yeah, to John, isn't he? Right, and you yeah. can see, and that's what Sarah starts realizing. Yeah, she, she says he's the ultimate father because you know he will he he won't stop, and you know while John he has his orders and he has to he has to obey those orders yeah. of John, even though John's uh, adolescent, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that's why the T one thousand is on my list. So, right, you're next. Choice, yeah, um, next one is the uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, played by Alan Rickman yeah. in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, nineteen ninety one. Directed by Kevin Reynolds, and the story is essentially Robin. Everyone knows the story of Robin Hood, but yeah. during the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart um, is away in France, and he leaves the, the Sheriff of Nottingham to rule um, England. Robin of Locksley, played by Kevin Costner, he's a nobleman. He chooses to follow the king in his crusade. Um, meanwhile, back at Locksley Castle, Robin's father, who's loyal to the king. Is attacked by the sheriff's men and re- after refusing to join them. Um, meanwhile, Robin's been captured and imprisoned in Jerusalem. He breaks free. He returns to England. He finds his father dead and the castle in ruins. And he encounters a band of outlaws hiding in Sherwood Forest, led by Little John. Um, Robin fights Little John and assumes command of the group. And what they do then is they rob any convoys that pass through the forest and they distribute the stolen wealth amongst the poor. Rickman actually turned the role down twice um, until he was assured he could do pretty much what he wanted with the character. And he actually reworked some of the lines, rewrote some of the lines, because he thought the script was really mm. poor. Um, and he, he's, he's just great. He's one of the most memorable villains of the 90s. Yeah. He's almost pantomime, spitting, fuming... Um, but he entirely eclipses Kevin Costner's mm. wussy American accent <laughs> in Robin Hood. You know, so much in fact, Costner was rumored that he, he asked for some of Alan Rickman's scenes to be cut. God, because when he realised how much that he was being upstaged, yeah. So it is again. It's one of those performances where you, you kind of have to pitch it at the level of the film, and so he does go over the top. Um, he has a. Uh, there is comedy in the film, mm. and a lot of the comedy comes from him and, and a lot of his lines that he's got as well. And like I say, he he totally overshadows Kevin Costner yeah. in that film. Uh, brilliant performance. Uh, it's well worth watching just for that 
yeah. I think you, you might be disappointed in the rest of the film. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely watch it for that. It's been a few years since I watched yeah. it, but I'll have to give it another watch. Right. Cool. Right. Um, my next villain is, it's, it's obvious with, with me because I always bang on about this film, but it's the Joker. Um, and the Joker is the main antagonist in the 2008 Christopher Nolan film, The Dark Knight. He's portrayed by Australian actor Heath Ledger, and for his performance, Ledger posthumously won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. And now this film, it's like, once again, it's a very simple um, plot, but following the events of Batman Begins, uh, there's basically all the, um, like the gangs, and they can't do like their deals and stuff, so they hire the Joker to kill Batman. And um, the reason why he's on my list is because Ledger's performance isn't just one of the best of an antagonist, but one of the best performances of all time, period. And you, th- you think of, of the most iconic movie characters of all time and just in pop culture, and Batman's definitely up there, but he, he actually, I think, eclipses Batman in this film. And that's just saying something, isn't it, you know? Um, Does he have a, a backstory? Uh, this is the thing. No, he doesn't. No. And I think Nolan chose... the. Re- I, I think Nolan done that on purpose because to make him seem mysterious because yeah. he literally, he, he comes out of nowhere. Because in, in the Keaton Batman, um, Jack Nicholson plays the Joker. Yeah. His background is that he was a small-time criminal. He actually killed Batman's parents, but he became disfigured. Yeah. Um, oh, and and that's goes, what kind of made him go over the edge... And, and being a little bit mental. It does. It does. He does say how he got his scars and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, I, I think Nolan decided not to go too much into his background and leave it a mystery, like with Michael Myers, because it just makes it more mysterious and and um, gives a better um, watch, in my opinion. But um, yeah, the Joker may not be the most physically intimidating antagonist. You know, Heath Ledger isn't the, the yeah. biggest biggest guy. But the fact that he's so unpredictable and so evil is what makes him send shivers up your spine. Like, um, there's scenes where he's talking to Batman, and you'd think that someone hired to kill him would, you know, he could pull out a knife, he could pull out a, pull out a bomb, like he, he ties people up um, to bombs and stuff. And uh, I think it's that unpredictability that just puts you on the edge of your seat every time you see him, you know? Um, I mean, everyone knows how legendary Ledger's performance was. I don't need to tell you that, but it is the closest performance of any comic character I've ever seen. Um, when he appears on the screen in the apartment scenes, um, you can see Michael Caine step back, and he actually looks absolutely terrified of Ledger. This is when, this is like his genuine reaction to seeing him for the first time. Like he he steps back, and you can see him. Um, I think he uh, he mutters some words that you can't hear, but it'd be being cockney with it and <laughs> um ledger's performance in my opinion alone has helped the joker as a character reach the heights of film lore that only maybe darth vader has reached and like i said that i could i could bang on forever about this film but these are just some of the reasons why the joker is on my list so yeah a good choice well it's because like batman um is the Christopher Nolan ones is, is a very dark film yeah. and it's a very kind of serious film. That's the, so yeah, I think you have to be balanced in your performance that you don't go too over the top and too campy. Well, this, this thing with, with the Joker, 
he um like with with I'll go back to the nineties films, they are very campy, you know, but these are very they they're they are really serious crime thrillers and they're they're so gritty and of course Eve Ledger plays the Joker and he's really gritty. Um but there's there's a few there's a few things he does like he's he's um quite over the top come like a couple times and but I think that just gives the film a good balance because it's not so dark that you can't enjoy it so but yeah like I said every time he gets on the screen you just he's funny as well and that's the thing like yeah. for a film so dark he's funny and you actually get a few laughs so yeah that's that's the reason why he's on my list but yeah, good okay moving on uh, my next one is uh, Jaws the 1975 thriller from Steven Spielberg and I've chosen The Shark yeah who I think was Nick on this one was nicknamed Bruce. Mm. Um, each film, um, the Shaq was nicknamed something different. I didn't realize that. I knew yeah. he was called Bruce, but yeah. So you should know the story, really. It's it's great white shark. It's attacking and killing swimmers off of the coast of Amity Island. Chief of the police, Martin Brody, along with shark expert Matt Hooper and grizzly shark fisherman Quinn, must hunt down and destroy the shark. Now, you could say, well, sharks themselves, they're not evil. They're just doing what they do, you know. As uh, Hooper puts it, it's a machine. It swims, it eats, and makes little sharks. Uh, but there's something slightly different, more sinister to the shark. Again, it, it taps into that sort of Michael Myers, Terminator, you know, unstoppable thing. Yeah. It's relentless. It keeps coming after them. Um, and I think there's something very primeval about it that kind of taps into our psyche. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, even now, I when I go swimming in the sea, I go out of my depth. I'm always worried about what's underneath <laughs> yeah, me. Even though we live even, in England. Even now, yeah. And it, it, that is. And it did. Even though um, shark attacks are rare, mm. um, it, did, it did actually give people... A, Really, well, that's that's the reason why fear of sharks. Yeah, that's the reason why the the modern fear of sharks. Yeah, really, is a thing, isn't it? Because of yeah. yours. Well, the shark in this film is it's bigger. It seems more intelligent. It actually targets them. It attacks their boat. Yeah, uh, the way it jumps onto the boat at the end um, to attack Quint. Um, it, yeah, it, it just seemed there's something almost supernatural about it. Yeah, um, and there is a lot of suspense. I know there was. You know, if you watch any documentary about making a Jaws, they had all sorts of problems with the mechanical sharks. Um, and to, to, so they didn't delay filming. They had to come up with some way of showing the shark was there without actually showing the shark. Mm. So these scenes like in the, the pier scene where the guys are fishing with the, with the Sunday roast, you've got the chain. You know, the shark drags the chain off. You don't see the shark, you just see the chain yeah. going off. You see it pulls the pier, the guy goes in the water... The pier slowly turns around and coming back, so you know the shark's coming after him, and it's that kind of suspense there, and the idea with the barrels as well. Um, this idea of shooting barrels into the shark to so it, it can't go under the water uh, that was really just to give you an idea the shark was there. It works so well, though, does. doesn't it? You know, and there's there's a scene where he says, "Oh, you know, he can't go under with three barrels. You know, they can go under with three barrels, and he goes under." Yeah. So that again adds to something to the you know this this whole the shark something it, different it keeps on breaking down like yeah. hurdles you thought it couldn't. Yeah. So um, so that's why I've chosen it. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it's just going to be an enduring image. Yeah. Um, 
people are always going to have a phobia of sharks, largely in part due to this yeah. film. So, yeah, and this—I mean, this film was f- considered the first summer blockbuster. I think it was the highest yeah. grossing film. Yeah, it was um, at the time. Um, it was eighteen as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. So, yeah, brilliant film. Mm. So, yeah, well, like I said, it's one of my favorites all the time, yeah. and definitely. Um, my next is uh, Jason Voorhees. Um, Jason Voorhees is the main antagonist in the 80s slash 90s slasher franchise, Friday the 13th. Um, he is portrayed by many different stunt actors throughout, most famously by American Kane Hodder. It's not Hodder that I'm basing my ranking on, though. It's English stuntman Richard Brooker. Um, now, it's like with, Jason, with the... Friday the 13th films, they're never going to win an Oscar or anything, you know. Um, all it is, is in the first film, uh, Jason's mum goes on the killing spree because uh, her son Jason drowned and it was due to the uh, camp counsellors. And then she dies and then Jason comes back and he starts killing as revenge at anyone who goes to Camp Crystal Lake, which is the main... Um, place where where it happens and like i said uh every film is basically the same thing it it always it follows the same formula so i'm not going to go into detail but um jason uh richard brooker portrays jason in the third film in the franchise and like i said it's still set in crystal lake and it's still him killing people um the reason why i picked brooker is because in the first movie like i said in in the first movie jason isn't even in film and the second movie jason is portrayed by warrington gillette now, Warrington Gillette is quite slim and he plays the infamous sackhead Jason. I don't know if you've heard of the sackhead yeah, Jason. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. In which he wears a potato sack on his <laughs> head and it, quite frankly, looks ridiculous. Also, I've had people call him Hillbilly Jason. Um, he's also really dumb in the film. Like, uh, he gets bested by the camp counsellors over and over again. Um, part three is actually the first time we see Jason don the iconic mask, hockey mask. Like, that's the first time it appears, even though it's so iconic. And it just happens to be the same film that Richard Brooker is in. And also, Richard Brooker is, is six foot four and he poses a real physical presence. You know, he's, he's hulking. He's almost as big as a fridge. He's like a, like a, a, a forward of like a rugby player, you know, sort of thing. Um, and he really, he set the tone for which every actor of Jason since has based their performances on. You know, along with the physical presence, Jason in this film also almost toys with his victims. I mean, uh, there's a scene at the end in the barn where you can actually see him laughing at one of the girls because she is scared. Um, this just shows you how really evil he is, that he's, he's, he finds that funny, he takes pride and, and he can laugh at that. Um, but yeah, if it weren't for Brooker, we wouldn't have got the iconic Jason Voice. everyone knows. And yeah, this, these are the reasons why Jason Voice is on my list. Like I said, he's, he's, he's not the most talked about, but he is the original Jason Voorhees that we see. So. Uh, my next one is, is Darth Vader, uh, mm. played by Dave Prowse, uh, voiced by James Earl Jones, and he appears obviously in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, um, created in, uh, by George Lucas. Um, so we first see uh, Darth Vader. Um, I'm not going to talk about Anakin Skywalker. I'm going to talk about when when he first dons the suit. Yeah, that's right at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Um, and there's not really a lot in there. He's, he just sort of walks about a bit, and and that's it. Um, 
you then see him um obviously he first appears in a new hope but he first appears in canon as well in in rogue one um so you see a little bit more of him his character you see his power there's a there's a fight scene where he, he takes on and i know quite a lot of rebels he just decimates yeah them, definitely um and then moving on to a new hope um again you don't really see a lot of his power you see him use the force to choke mm. a guy uh there's a bit of a fight with obi-wan where although he defeats obi-wan obi-wan actually lets him um kill him and then there's the uh the the attack on the death star so you see him as a pilot yeah um and again you don't really see a lot of his powers he's he's supposed to be this great jedi um moving on to empire again you see a little bit more of that yeah uh there's obviously the epic fight scene with luke uh where you get the ultimate reveal um but you see a little bit more of his his personality you you find a little bit more about his backstory mm. um and then obviously return of the jedi <clears throat> obviously luke finally accepts that uh, darth vader is his father um and he he, he can sense good in him but um his father disagrees with him luke doesn't feel he's going to he's going to turn him over to the emperor but he does um and then there's this obviously the rest of the film is about the emperor trying to trying to make turn uh, luke turn to the dark side mm. um there's a fight scene between luke and, and darth vader um uh, but in the end luke won't turn so the emperor is going to destroy him and then right at the end darth vader the conflict in him um grows and he ends up saving his son um so yeah it's it's a great villain um you know he's, he doesn't hesitate to kill his old old master he doesn't hesitate to kill people he you know he tortures han he aims to turn his own son over to the empire um there's a lot of things that he's done um in his backstory as well yeah in, in you know Involving hunting down and killing Jedi. He has uh, a physical yeah. uh, presence as well, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, it does, definitely. So, you know, I think a lot of people say he's the kind of the ultimate uh, film villain. Yeah. Um, and I, I wouldn't disagree. No. Really. Uh, there's not really a lot you, else you can say about mm. it. You just, you know, I think most people would have seen Star Wars, would have seen Darth Vader and know yeah. exactly what, what he's about. So. Right. Great. Well, this this is leading on to my next video, and there's Anakin Skywalker. So yeah. uh, it's before he turns into Darth Vader. And um, yeah, Anakin Skywalker, most famously known as Darth Vader, is the main antagonist in the Star Wars franchise. Um, he's portrayed by Canadian actor Hayden Christensen in the prequels. Um, I mean, first off, we all know how we feel about Hayden Christensen as Darth Vader. Uh, it wasn't the best casting choice, you know. In, in Episode Two, he was basically unwatchable. That's why I'm basing my list on his performance from Episode Three and Episode Three alone. Um, and basically, in Episode Three, it it shows how like he's been in conflict for the first two films, 
and episode three finally falls to the dark side. Um, but yeah, now that I've got out of that out of the way, uh, these are the reasons why he's on my list. Uh, in episode three, uh, he's much less whiny, and you can actually see at points how he became Darth Vader. Um, this was seriously lacking in episode two. Uh, Hayden Christensen embodies what it means to be Vader, the evil that he possesses, and um, this ability to possess the evil is a big reason why George Lucas cast him in the first place. When I mean, he famously said that's that's literally the main reason why he did. Um, in this film, you can see at points where he really, nearly of sorts, lets the dark side take over. Um, you can see the conflict and see how unbalanced of a person he is in this film. It's like the it's like the light and dark side are like fighting fighting out to take over him. And this is something that Christensen does very well. Also like how vulnerable he is in this film. Um, you know, he's he's got so much power, but also he's you know, he's he's there's scenes where he's crying because he that's just the conflict. Like he's he's doing these things, but he knows they're wrong, but he knows he has to do them at the same time as well. And this gives him emotion, and it's this emotion which we can relate to. He also shows how powerful and willing he is. I use the youngling scene as an example. He, um, in that scene, he, he kills the younglings who are about five, six years old. Um, I think that he delivers his lines brilliantly, even though it's not the best dialogue that he's delivering. For example, before and during the Battle of Mustafa with Obi-Wan, he's almost warning, pleading for Obi-Wan to join him. And this almost, once again shows that he still has some sort of a heart, that he's not fully to the dark side because he never was. Um, but yeah, like I said, with Darth Vader, there's there's not much you can really say because everyone knows knows how iconic and how evil is. But yeah, these are the reasons why I can... Well, he, he was kind of manipulated by Palpatine um, yeah. a lot. Um, you know, Jedis aren't supposed to be emotional. Um, they're supposed to hide their emotions... But um, that's kind of what, like you say, he was very emotional. Yeah. And that's kind of what allowed him to, to go to the dark side. He, he kind of, um, he kind of, he lost the trust of the Jedi Council yeah. because they were, and that's the thing, with the Jedi Council in episode, in episode three, um, they are somewhat hypocritical because they tell him not to do things, but things they wouldn't tell him to do, they tell him to do. And he's got that father figure in Palpatine, and he, he at the end of the day, he allows Palpatine to, to manipulate him, and and that's it, all this combines, and and it is it. This is the reason why he falls to the dark side. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, like I said, I I think even though, like I said, we all know how Raiden Christensen is, but I think in this film, at that point, you can see how how he could be Vader and um, he tells the story very well. So, yeah. I'm sure I read somewhere that um, obviously at the end of Revenge of the Sith, he's horrifically um, injured, isn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, obviously he gets, he gets um, yeah. burnt by the lava, he gets his limbs chopped that's off. That's obviously why he has to have the suit to mm. basically keep him alive. But I think I read somewhere that that means that he's in constant pain, and that yeah. kind of adds to his. So what 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 Palpatine did is he, with the suit, he he made it so it it puts Anakin in constant pain, yeah. and this he and basically tortures him, him. Yeah, tortures him and keeps him kind of you know at the angry, dark side, angry dark side. Yeah. yeah, 
So, but yeah, yeah. a lot of it is to do with, with Palpatine. But um, yeah, this is the reasons why he's on my list. So, because right. he's kind of weird. Because the end of Return of the Jedi, you know, he's, he's trying to he's trying to turn Luke to the dark side. Mm. But then, obviously, the rule of two would mean that Darth Vader would have to die, wouldn't he? Yeah, because there can only be two Siths at any point. At any point. But yeah, I, I think obviously Palpatine probably knew all along that he wasn't, he didn't yeah. want Vader anymore. So he wanted Luke to strike Vader down and then yeah. join him at his side. So, but. so yeah, so maybe maybe he did want that to happen, possibly. Well, maybe he he. Um, uh, with Palpatine, he, he obviously uh, planned well in advance to take over, so he's, yeah. he's probably planned that as well. So, because yeah. in the Empire Strikes Back, he said part of his speech, didn't he? he said, "Join me, and we we can rule the galaxy together." So, it would suggest there that he was he had Vader plans one. to get rid of Palpatine, maybe. Yeah, yeah but well, like yeah. I said, I, I never believed that no. that Vader was fully. Uh, into everything Palpatine yeah. done, there's there's always that conflict within him, and like I said, he was never fully bad. And the things he, um, the bad things he did do was under Palpatine. It wasn't yeah. coming from him himself. So yeah, but yeah, cool. we could we can back that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah. So moving on, a little bit of a lighter note. <laughs> um, my next uh, villain is. Uh, Dennis, played by Alec Baldwin, and he appears in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, hey. um, 2004, directed by Stephen Hillenberg. Yeah. And the story is that Plankton steals King Neptune's crown and he frames Mr. Krabs so he can steal the Krabby Patty secret formula and take over the world. Uh, and SpongeBob and Patrick team up to retrieve the crown from Shell City to save Mr. Krabs. Mm. Now, Dennis is hired by Plankton. Um, and Dennis is a murderous fish bounty hunter and he's hired to kill SpongeBob and Patrick and prevent the two from finding King Neptune's crown. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a couple of, couple of times in the, the film that he appears. Um, but he's again, he's, he's one of those Terminator-like characters. Appears over and over again, yeah. yeah. Um, he seems to enjoy violence. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a scene where uh, he's got a boo with spikes on, yeah, big and boo. just the fact that he's going to enjoy killing SpongeBob is enough to make him a villain. Yeah, on this list, how could anybody? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. Of course, he has the um at the end of the film that Hasselhoff scene. He has yeah. the the big um the shock with Tom where you thought he was dead and yeah. he wasn't, and yeah. he was he eventually he almost toyed with him as well. Yeah. Like like you said, he was he was um he enjoyed the fact that he was going to kill them. Yeah. But, so yeah, that's why he's on my list. Yeah. No, very good one, mate. Um, right, going a bit darker than that. <laughs> uh, my next villain is Thanos, and um, Thanos is the main antagonist in the Avengers franchise. Um, he is portrayed by American actor Josh Brolin, and I, I think it's odd how Thanos literally only appears in three of the, like literally three of the twenty-three Marvel Cinematic Universe films, but he's regarded as one of the greatest villains of all time. Um, this is a testament to just how good Josh Brolin's performance is and how well-written the character of Thanos is. Um, unlike the other villains on the list, I don't see Thanos as this character embodies evil. At the heart of it, he believes he is saving the universe, and that's what his motivation is. So he, in the film um, Infinity War, like all of um, 
Earth's natural resources are, or the universe's resources are, are failing, like there's too much of a population. So he goes around and gets these stones called the Infinity Stones and his plan is to wipe out half of the population so uh, the universe can prosper again. So it's not exactly an evil act, but it is at the same time. Um, this makes him unique and it is sort of refreshing as well. It's not just some guy going around killing for the sake of it, you know. Um, when you get, It's the thing, when you get an antagonist who is so wrapped up and who believes that what he's doing is the right thing, it generally is fascinating. And of course, he is physically imposing. But I think the most intimidating thing about him is the fact he's willing to risk it all to complete his mission. And spoiler alert, he even kills his own daughter, Gamora, to, to fulfill his um, mission. And yeah, like I said, these are the reasons why he's on my list. But like I said, it it's just the sheer motivation behind it. And it is, it's a different way to take things and it's a different take on a villain. And he obviously it's, it's a testament to Thanos that you've got all these different star characters and it is him who's the one who stands out. But yeah, I'm, I'm mostly basing it off of Infinity War because I think Thanos has used the best in, in Infinity War. So yeah, that's why he's on my list. Okay, cool. So moving on, our next one um, is Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem. Yep. And he appears in the 2007 film No Country for Old Men, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. And brief plot is that Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin, is out hunting. He comes across the aftermath of a drug deal gone bad. Um, he finds several dead men, a dying man asking for water, and a stash of drugs and $2 million in a briefcase. He takes a briefcase of money and he goes home. And he wakes up in the middle of the night. He's feeling guilty. So he returns to the scene with water for the, the dying guy. But he finds that he's already dead. But then um, a truck pulls up and he's basically chased by these two guys. Um, and he manages to escape into a, a river. Um, he goes home because what's happened is he's left his truck behind mm. and they, they're able to trace him through his license plate. So he goes home, sends his wife Carla Jean to stay with her mother and then he, he basically goes on the run with the briefcase. Um, Anton Chigurh is um, basically a hitman and he's hired to recover the money. There's not, he's got no backstory. Um, you see him at the start of the film, he, he's pulled over by um, a sheriff, he's taken into the sheriff's office and he manages to escape by killing the sheriff. Um, so it shows that he's he's willing to kill, you know, quite easily. Mm. Uh, he's got no remorse. Again, it's like he's he's got this weird hair style as well. So it's almost alien like. He mm. just he just appeared out of nowhere. Like I say, he's got no backstory. He's sent after Moss, and he's got this habit of. Um, giving his victims uh, a chance to survive by flipping a coin. Mm. It's like he goes into a gas station and he's talking to this guy and this guy's asking questions and he obviously doesn't like, you know, the fact he's asking questions about him and he gets him to uh, flip a coin, um, knowing that if he loses, he's going to kill him. And that's how, how sort of cold he is mm. as, a, as a murderer. Um, and he, one of his favourite sayings is, what's the most you've ever lost on a coin toss? And it's quite chilling because he, he actually he manages to find 
uh, Moss's wife, Carla Jean. Um, and he's, he sits there and he's actually saying, yeah, I'm going to kill you on Moss, you know, unless you tell me, you know, where he is. So it's quite quite a chilling mm. character. Seems to have no remorse or compassion for, for other human beings. Um, but I think he's a brilliant character, mm. uh, very well acted. And he, he won, Javier Bardem won yeah. the Oscar, didn't he, yeah, for that? that's right. Um, yeah, uh, he's definitely on a lot of lists, yeah. but rightly. Um, and he's just a weird person, isn't he? Yeah. He's just a weird character. Like, yeah. he's got no, like, of course, like, it's not a, a main thing, but he's got, like, no social skills whatsoever. No. He's just, he's, even though he's a person, he's almost like a human Terminator, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, Because he just yeah. keeps showing up yeah. time and time again. Yeah. And um, go back to the the hotel scene, yeah, where you can just see his feet underneath, and he has that contraption where it can yeah, shoot off a, the an air gun type thing, yeah, yeah, shoot off the yeah the door handles. But yeah, he just he's got one mission, and he's just gonna he's not gonna stop until he yeah. completes it. So yeah, very definitely very chilling character. Mm. Yeah. All right, um, my next character is uh, Patrick Bateman, and uh, Patrick Bateman is the main antagonist in the two thousand Mary Harron film. American Psycho. I've actually never seen American oh. Psycho. It's on my list that I'm going to. Oh, it's a very good <laughs> film. It, yeah. One of my favourites. Um, he's portrayed by English actor Christian Bale. And this, the thing is, the reason why he's on my list is because, firstly, American Psycho is a unique film in which the main antagonist, Patrick Bateman, happens to be also the main character. Um, this is a very interesting movie, and it makes the film feel like it makes it feel different. Um, and I love, I love unique films like that. Yeah. You know. Um, Christian Bale really shows his acting prowess in this film and he really does put everything into portraying Bateman and this pays off for me personally as I don't see Bale I see the character he's playing which you think you think it could be easy like they're playing a the character so you, you can see the character but even someone as, as famous and well known as, as Bale I, I, yeah, I don't see Bale as himself in this film I see him as the character he's playing yeah. he makes for a good watch um it's a fascinating portrayal in which we see how a serial killer really acts in his day-to-day life um, compared to when he is committing murder. As the film goes on and he is suspected to be the murderer even more, uh, we really do see Bateman start to deteriorate. Um, you know, how he acts with other people, how he looks, his overall well-being, it changes. Um, Bell really does show this throughout the film and it keeps us hooked to the character. Um like I said, as the film progresses, you can really see him start, those layers start to come come down, get scraped down, you know? Um, and yeah, overall, he's just one crazy son of a bitch, basically. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he really does show that he's just pure and utter crazy. Like, he doesn't, it's not like he kills because he's got like this huge chip in his shot, or he's, he's got a vendetta. He just mm-hmm. kills for the sake of it because he's yeah. just crazy. He's just purely, utterly crazy. And yeah, this is the reason why Bateman's on my list. Yeah, definitely check that out. Film yeah. art, I think. That's a good one. So my next one is uh, Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, uh, he appears in the two thousand film Gladiator, directed by Ridley Scott. Um, and the brief plot is that after battling with the Germans for Marcus Aurelius, the general Maximus, he decides he wants to retire back to his Spanish farm. Uh, but the emperor tells him that. Um, he doesn't feel that his son Commodus is is fit to inherit and and to rule Rome, so he wants to appoint Maximus as regent, and to and to turn it back into a republic. 
Um, when Marcus Aurelius tells Commodus his decision, Commodus, um, he's always felt ignored by his father and unloved. He flies into a rage, rage and strangles him. Um, Commodus asks Maximus for his loyalty, but Maximus suspects foul play and refuses. So Commodus has Maximus arrested and orders him, orders him executed. He manages to escape, makes a long journey back to his farm in Spain, but he arrives too late to find that Commodus's men have burnt it to the ground and they've murdered his wife and son. Um, and then Maximus is uh, found and basically sold uh, into being a gladiator, uh, eventually making it to Rome uh, where he, he actually faces Commodus. And Commodus, being, being the guy he is, he mortally wounds Maximus so that he has an advantage in the battle. Um, so it's it's a really good performance, I think. You know, yeah. um, Commodus is cruel. He's a psychopath. There's a bit of incest there with his sister. Mm. You know, he's he thinks of himself as a god. He's almost like a petulant child. He just wants people to love him, um, even to the point of threatening his own uh, the life of his own nephew, so to control his sister. Mm. Um, so he's really a, an evil character. Um, he's, he's, you know, like I say, he's probably like a spoiled brat. He's been brought up, mm. given everything he, you know, he ever wanted. Um, I mean, like when stuff doesn't go his way, yeah. he, he always, there's this thing where, where they're all chatting for Maximus. Yeah. He has a tantrum. Yeah, he? definitely. Yeah. Like you, that goes back to the, the petulant child. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a really good performance and, and it really does offset that kind of performance by Russell Crowe as, as this hero gladiator as well. Mm. So I think he is one of, uh, yeah, one of the, the one of the best modern villains. I think. Mm. I think the reason why he is as well is because you physically hate him. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's very few villains where you actually physically no. hate. Like you have a actual yeah, vendetta against. There's, there's, I mean, there's lots of villains that you can understand. Um, you know, the, the way they are because their upbringing or something events that have happened or there's something about them that. Maybe you feel a little bit of sympathy for, but yeah. for him, yeah, you yeah, don't, don't at all feel any sympathy. Yes, you have human hate for him. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, right. Um, like I said, on a much lighter note, uh, my next villain is the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. <laughs> yeah, you... and uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, known as Mister Stay Puft, is you know he's he's an antagonist, yeah, but he's almost like the final boss of sorts, isn't he? In in the nineteen eighty four Ivan Reitman film Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's like. You're playing a game, you're it's leveling the final up, boss. and he's the boss. Yeah. <laughs> he's portrayed by American stunt actor Bill Bryan. And um, so I'll just give you a bit of, of what the plot's about. So they're scientists uh, who lose their jobs and they become ghost hunters. And the scientists are played by Bill Murray, um, Dan Aykroyd, and what's it, Harold Ramis. Yep. yep. And um, yeah, they become ghost hunters. And one of their clients, played by uh, Sigourney Weaver, um, Starts getting possessed by the demon Zul, who is like this this almost dog, and um, yeah, basically what happens is uh, she becomes possessed and she becomes the uh, is it the key master? Yeah, yeah, keeper, key master, yeah, keeper. Yeah. Um, and what's the? But basically, the there's an increase in like supernatural activities in there, and it's yeah. all centered around the building that she lives in. Yeah, and. The, they realise that the building, um, 
the actual architecture is, is such that it, it's going to be a, a gateway for um, the essentially the end of the world, isn't it? Yeah. That the um, and they get they have a choice of what what um, form that. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, the form what their end is going to be, yeah. and um, uh, Stapoft appears at the end of the film when Ray can't help but think of Stapoft marshmallows because yeah. they all try and like clear their yeah. mind, don't they? So, although it's kind of a childhood sort of uh, you know, innocuous sort of uh, form, essentially, it's here to destroy the world, yeah. but um, uh, what I love is, is as you hear his footsteps. They're like, what, what the hell is that? He just appears on screen and he's just this huge marshmallow man. You know, he's that physical presence. And he's literally as big as the skyscrapers yeah. around him, isn't he? And um, there's a scene in there, he says, um, it's, it's Bill Murray is Venkman. He's going, I didn't think of anything. Did you? Did you? He goes, no, did you? No. And he's like, like, going, I couldn't help it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing with Stay Puft, like... He just has this this like set smile that like, yeah. stares into your soul, you know. <laughs> and like I said, overall, he's just an iconic character. Like, um, he's not necessarily the antagonist in the film, but he is the the like I said, the final um, hurdle in their way. And yeah, that's the reason why I just wanted to include Stay Puft yeah. Man, man, like. So yeah, but it is evil because it's intending to, to end the world. End so, the world, yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, that's why he's on my list. <laughs> okay, moving on. My um, my next choice is Hannibal Lecter. Um, and I'm choosing um, The Silence of the Lambs, yeah. the 1991 Jonathan Demme film um, with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, this isn't the first time Hannibal Lecter has appeared on film. Uh, there was a film, 1986 film, uh, directed by Jonathan Demme called Manhunter, and that was based on Thomas Harris's first book, Red Dragon, and it starred um, Brian Cox as Lecter, but didn't do so well as this film. So that's why I've chosen the Anthony Hopkins performance because that obviously got an Oscar for that as well. Yeah. And I think the film won an Oscar for Best Picture as well. Um, and Hopkins did reprise his role in two films. He actually, they, they went back and filmed Red Dragon, I think about 10 years later. Mm. And then the, uh, another book, Hannibal. But I don't think either was as successful as Silence of the Lambs. So essentially the story is that um, there's a serial killer on the loose. He's nicknamed Buffalo Bill because he kidnaps, mutilates and murders young women. Uh, FBI trainee Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, is sent to interview the imprisoned serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Um, She's told it's just a routine thing. They're wanting to ask him to fill in a questionnaire. But what they actually want him to do is to help them in the case uh, and shed some insight into Buffalo Bill, which um, he, he finally does. Um, what makes his performance so great is I think he appears on screen for like less than 20 minutes, mm. but he's just a memorable character. Yeah. Um, there has been, like I say, a couple of films after that and a TV series which um, details sort of the backstory of Hannibal Lecter but essentially, he was a he was a psychiatrist. Um, he would kill and eat his victims. That's why he got his nickname Hannibal the Cannibal. He's highly intelligent. He's impeccably cultured, sophisticated, and rather than killing for fun, he actually kills 
those people who exhibit poor taste or bad manners because fine taste and good manners uh, being both an obsession and a compulsion for him. So, like I said, not like a lot of serial killers. Um, mm. You know, he doesn't just go around targeting anybody. Yeah. Um, and obviously being intelligent and psychiatrist, you'd expect him to know what he is. And he does. He, he believes himself to be evil. Again, he's he's exceptionally charming, but there is that sinister thing there. And he, he, when you actually t- when she's talking to him, you, you kind of forget that he's a serial killer, mm. and that he's actually the things that he's done, um, very violent things, um, and obviously eating people as well. So I think that's what makes him such a great character. Yeah, um, he's, he's he's almost likable as well <laughs> in a way. Yeah, yeah. You kind of. Like we were saying before about communist being, there's nothing about him that you 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 don't hate Hannibal Lecter, um, and you actually feel some sympathy for him in the in the film as well. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's he's he's kind of a complex character, but again, a great performance. Um, judging by the fact he only appears on film for such a short short space of time, um, and he's kind of a, a very memorable. Villain, yeah, 100%. No, um, well, I'm gonna keep this one short and sweet. Uh, my next uh villain is Lord Farquhar from Shrek, <laughs> mate. Uh, it's it's odd because Lord Farquhar is the main antagonist in the 2001 Andrew Adamson film Shrek. He's voiced by American actor John Lithgow. But what I love about Lord Farquhar is he isn't necessarily evil, um. Like that evil is is almost as if the viewer has the upper hand on him, and uh, this is because he's like the stereotypical douchebag villain, isn't he? Uh, he's generally funny. Yeah, because I think if I can remember because it's been a while, but um, isn't it? He just wants to have the perfect kingdom, so he, he, that's kingdom. why. He, but he wants to also get with Fiona as well. Yeah, but he. That's why he rounds up all the um, fairy tale animals and and departs them yeah. to Shrek's swamp. Yeah, and and it's it's very much like he's commodus as well. He's like a he's he's used to getting everything his way. He's like a crybaby, but like I said, he is that douchebag villain, and he is genuinely funny. Like there's there's <laughs> things he does where it will have you laughing and. It's like you don't laugh with him, you laugh at him, and that's a very different thing for a um for a villain. And you just, I think you just laugh at how much of a melt he is. Like he's he is like a because he's self conscious about his height as well, yeah. isn't he? Um, yeah, and that that adds a little bit of the humour mm. to it. Like I said, he is he is the butt of the joke, yeah. isn't he? Um, and it's it's funny to see him get rejected by Fiona because he thinks he's this ladies man that everyone wants him. And like I said, it's just a, it's very. I know it's tricks like a family film but it's just refreshing to see a villain where you can actually laugh at them and they're they're the ones that are like trying to prove something instead of you know yeah but it's, yeah it's, it's kind of it doesn't know that people are laughing at him does yeah. he? he kind of he's, he's not self-aware he's just he's got um, a big ego and yeah. it's just funny to see see that get crushed but and he tortures a gingerbread man so that, yeah, that's man. evil, isn't it? How dare you do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I said, that's, that's just I love it because you can yeah. laugh at him, Good. and he, he does. He's not necess- He doesn't do anything that evil, 
but it's like I said, it's just funny to see him fail in everything yeah. he's he's trying to do. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, my next one is the Predator from yeah. the film Predator, uh, nineteen eighty seven John McTiernan film, um, and that's played by Peter Michael Hall. Although originally um, Jean Claude Van Damme was cast to play uh, Kevin Peter Michael Hall, so I think six foot ten. Yeah, and I think there is some test footage that they oh. shot of him in this kind of predator suit, and I think he left in it because it was just so uncomfortable to wear this suit, and he it couldn't. Was, it was like a praying mantis. Yeah, and he, he couldn't really move because obviously he's he's kind of a you know karate guy, and I don't think he could actually do any of his moves in, in the suit. So, uh, Predator stars Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's the leader of the next elite paramilitary rescue team on a mission to save hostages in guerrilla-held territory in Central American rainforest. Um, Central American countries, it's in the throw of civil war. Um, they locate the rebels' camp, uh, but they also find the remains of another special forces team um, that have all been killed and skinned. So they're, they're a little bit concerned about that. Uh, they go in... They rescue the hostages, um, and the uh, the scenes, uh, the actual locations, too hot for them to send in a helicopter rescue. So they have to get to a, a location where they can be airlifted out. Um, and what they don't realise is they're being hunted by this um, uh, predator, who's a technologically advanced alien, and he's basically stalking them. And then it's that typical. Um, horror sort of trope where they're being picked off one by one um, and till only their leader is is left um, and so then because the predator can identify technology he kind of goes old school so he's building these traps out of wood and things like that, using spears and things um, uh, to sort of engage in single combat with him so uh, and at the end the predator knowing that it's 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 defeated it sets a bomb <laughs> to blow itself up so again it's it's not really evil it's kind of doing what it does yeah um, I mean predators they are hunters it's a sport to them it's, it's a game they're there to kind of pit themselves against the best um, the best think of, it, think of it as like humans doing bird hunting isn't it it's like yeah yeah it's like hunting like um, a tiger or, or a lion you yeah. know they're they're trying to hunt they're trying to go up against the most dangerous prey um, to pit themselves against that and there's a scene in the in the um, in the film where um, there's a they when they rescue the hostages they take one of the um, it's a it's a woman. They take her with her with them, um, and she's not armed, and she's the only one who's not killed because it only attacks people who are armed. Mm. Um, but again, it's it's a great it's a great character. It's great. It's a great sort of premise as well. I think I don't think it, it's sort of been done before. An alien coming to Earth, and yeah, so it was. Really good, and obviously it spawned, you know, sequels and and crossovers mm. with Alien and everything else. But I think as a character, Predator, yeah, was was a really good antagonist. Because um, again, it's it's 
um, it uses a cloaking device. You can't see it. So it's, it's that kind of unknown. Um, and like I say, it's using that that old sort of horror trope of, you know, picking one off at a time. Yeah. Um, and there's that paranoia as well that builds up. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really good film. Um, and I think a really good antagonist. Right, my next is um, Simon Phoenix. And uh, Simon Phoenix is the main antagonist in the 1993 Marco Brambilla film, Demolition Man. Uh, he's portrayed by American actor Wesley Snipes. And basically the, the premise of, of Demolition Man is uh, John Spartan, played by Sylvester Stallone, is like the... Uh, it's set in the late 20th century and he's like the best cop and Simon Phoenix is this um, mastermind criminal and they kind of um, go back and thought forth, you know, they've, they've encountered each other a couple of times and... Uh, he captures Snipes only after he's blown up a building that's killed civilians. So they both get cryogenically frozen because that's their punishment. And when Snipes is ready to be, uh, it's like goes years into the future and he's unfrozen to um, go to court, but he escapes. So they have to unfreeze John Spartan to go and capture him again and um, for me personally Simon Phoenix is hands down the best part of Demolition Man because um, in, so in the future violence is is no longer a, a thing is it yeah and no. so they need they need, the, 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 they need somebody from his time period to and plus because they they they, um, they know each other yeah. and uh, he's caught him before. That's why he, he gets uh, the uh, John Spartan gets unfrozen as well. But yeah, like I said, I think Simon Phoenix is hands down the best part of Demolition Man. Um, like he's meant to be the bad guy, but I cannot help but side with him. Like he's cocky, arrogant, and he knows that he can do anything he wants. You know, he, he can. He's another one where he kills and he doesn't give a thought to it you know he almost kills and he, he laughs about it uh, he's generally funny and that's somewhat different he also has a bit of personality about him he's also some guy going around killing um, you know he, he there's certain remarks that he has that will leave you phys- physically laughing um, and yeah he just he just all around certainly heightens the enjoyment yeah. factor the film he's in it's certainly a period when Wesley Snipes was big, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And then he sort of tailed away his popularity. But this is right, right during it. Yeah. But no, like I said, that he definitely heightens the the enjoyment factor for for this film for me personally. And um, yeah, definitely give it a watch if you haven't. So yeah. okay. So my next one is uh, Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer. And he's from the 1982 uh, film directed by Ridley Scott, Blade Runner. I actually watched this again yesterday, yeah. um, and I just forgot how great a film it is. Really good. Um, it's set in future Los Angeles of 2019, <laughs> um, which is kind of, again, a dystopian future. And what they've done, Terrell Corporation, they have basically genetically engineered humans known as replicants, um, and they're used for like off um, what they call off planet um, work, um, and because they are they have a tendency to be um, 
violent and whatever. Yeah, emotionally. Um, they have, uh, yeah, they have emotional issues, which which makes them violent. So they've been outlawed uh, on Earth, um, and any replicant that comes to Earth is pursued by a special police unit called the Blade Runners, and they retire them, which means they just basically kill them. Um, the only way to find uh, determine if they're a replicant is they have to give them a test. Um, and it's all against, it's all against um, empathy and their response to that as well. But what they've done is they've they've developed uh, a new replicant called the Nexus Six, and that's designed to be better than humans, except for their emotions. So what they've done is to be able to control them better. They give them they give them false memories, and that's uh, supposed to act as a cushion for their emotions. But they, knowing that they will eventually develop their own emotions, they've built them with a four-year lifespan. So what what happened is a group of Nexus Six replicants led by Roy Batty, um, they they come to Earth. Um, they essentially they want to basically extend their lifespan. So they're trying to get to the, to Doctor Terrell. Um, they've killed a lot of people they've done a lot of bad things um retired blade runner rick decker played by harrison ford he reluctantly agrees to come back and work for the blade runners and hunt down these um these replicants um and he eventually kills them all apart from roy uh, who actually um he does actually manage to meet terrell uh, and when terrell says he can't do anything about extending the lifespan he kills him as well but it's um it the the final of the film it, it's a, a chase across the rooftops um harrison ford or uh, decker he tries to jump from uh one roof to another and he doesn't quite make it he's hanging off the roof right back he jumps across he easily makes it and he could easily kill him but he doesn't he actually saves him in the end uh because he knows that he's coming to the end of his life and he's basically facing his fate um he gives this really sort of eloquent monologue and then just calmly dies so again it's not he's not really a villain because um it's maybe the ways that he's been engineered um all he all he wants is what everybody wants is to survive um he has done some horrible things he's a mass murderer he's done some very despicable things but again you feel a bit of sympathy for him in the end um but it, it raises like philosophical questions about you know what makes a human a human is a genetically engineered human a human um is it our emotions that makes us human is it our memories so yeah there's a lot of, lot of questions that it raises um but he's he's performance is really good um again he's one of these very on screen he's very he's mesmerizing um very eloquent you know he's stronger more intelligent than uh than human uh like i say his his performance is is really good um and in the end he realizes the uh, value of life and actually saves Decker's Decker's life. 
So, yeah, yeah. that's why uh, I think he's he's quite yeah, a good def- def- antagonist. Def- definitely one of the best. Yeah. Right. Um, my next is not um, Emperor, but Senator Palpatine. Um, now, Senator Palpatine, along with Darth Vader, is the main antagonist in the Star Wars franchise. He is essentially Darth Vader's boss, in simple terms. Um, he's portrayed by Scottish actor Ian McDermott. And um, like I said, I'm going to focus on Palpatine in the prequels when he hasn't hit the heights of Emperor yet. So that's why, why I call him Senator. Um, first off, Ian McDermott is one of the best and most respected actors to, to have come from the UK. You know, he's Shakespearean trained and you can really see this in his performances. Uh, in the sequels, you can see that uh, he has this underlying evil without giving too much away. Um, the darkness comes out every now and then uh, before quickly being shelved. Um, I, For an example, it's in the, the, the scene where he tells Anakin about the story of Darth Plagueis, you can see how much... Uh, how much of a whale of a time he's he's having about talking about the dark side and and then he quickly um, snaps back to normal, you know. Um, along the course of episode three, he gradually persuades Anakin and abuses his trust, eating away each layer until he eventually turns Anakin to the dark side. Um, once he reveals the fact that he is a Sith Lord, he completely changes and this is the Palpatine we see in the originals. Um no, I, I love Palpatine in episode three. I think he's the the best character in the whole of the prequels because he toys with his enemies. Um, he even goes as far to toy with Jedi Grandmaster Yoda. Uh, this is because he knows how powerful he is and he knows he can defeat anyone and that just sums up Palpatine, doesn't it? Um, he literally is the embodiment of evil and he, does, he doesn't give a damn. And um, the, the fact that he was able, like to do with the whole prequels and how he rose to prominence, he had that planned out the whole time. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things didn't go his way, like uh, Darth Maul was meant to be his, his new apprentice for the long run. Obi-Wan then ends up killing him. And then he gets in Count Dooku as his apprentice, but he he knew how powerful Anakin was because he's throughout the prequels, he's almost like the father figure of Anakin. And he realises how just how powerful Anakin is and how many midichlorians he has. Um, and he purposely, he knows that Anakin can kill Dooku in the start of episode three. So he makes them fight and he tells Anakin to kill Dooku so he can have, uh, like like we were saying before, the rule of two. He can have a new apprentice. And um, yeah, like throughout the movie, he just, he just toys with, with Anakin. He... he plays on his emotion because Anakin is a very emotional person and he is the one that projects the uh, the visions of Padme dying in childbirth during, during his sleep and um, this is the big reason why Anakin does turn to the dark side because going back to the, the conversation with him and, and um, Anakin he tells of the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise which was Palpatine's master and he was so powerful in the, in the force in the dark side that he was able to um, almost manipulate the midichlorians to create life and also save life as well and uh, where Anakin is so in love with, with Padme um, he's willing to 
almost turned to the dark side in order to save her, even though he's not doing anyone any favours. And even after um, Anakin's turned to the dark side, even after he's, he's suited up as in Vader's suit, he he tells Anakin that he was he was the one that killed Padme, when that just isn't true, and that keeps um, that keeps him in in like uh, constant pain, and that's what uh, also that's mental pain, but also the the suit with the physical pain, and yeah, that just goes shows the depths that he's willing to go to mm-hmm. to keep him by his side, and it's just pure evil. Yeah. So all the way through the Skywalker saga, he. he, he it's kind of um he claims that it was you know he it was all down to him it's his design that everything happened according to you know his will yeah um so yeah it's uh definitely uh probably one of the best villains oh yeah 100% like yeah. vader's obviously up like yeah. the top but i tell you what palpatine is not far behind cuz palpatine is the um like Vader's the pawn and all this, yeah. you know. Uh, Palpatine is the puppet master, and he's he's well, it's the way he, he um, the way he manipulates the um, the council and everything, yeah. Um, the way he gets like Jar Jar Binks to be, um, you know, on the on the Senate, um, and the way that he he gets Jar Jar Binks to you know proclaim him the ultimate um, leader of the Senate, wasn't yeah. He? And everything so but just the fact it shows how smart he is as well just the yeah. fact that he had this all planned out and um you actually in episode three you actually get to see palpatine fight for the first yeah. time with a lightsaber when he, he fights uh mace windu and you just see how skilled he of a of a um with a lightsaber is yeah. he, he knows all four he's mastered all forms of of lightsaber battle but he, he actually doesn't even like to use a lightsaber he just he can use his Force lightning. Yeah. Um. He just uses like I said to toy, and um. Like I said, at the end he he fights Master Yoda, and he he's even toying with Yoda because he knows he nine times out of ten he can beat Yoda. He just he's just that powerful and evil. So yeah, that's the reason why he's on my list. But like I said, though, I can talk about Star Wars <laughs> for ages. But... Yeah. Well, we're kind of running out of time. So. Yeah. <laughs> so my last one is um, Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman. Um, he appears in uh, 1998 film Die Hard, directed by John McTiernan. Um, and we all know, I should think, what <laughs> the plot of Die Hard. Yeah. But essentially, New York police detective John McClane is visiting his what played by Bruce Willis. He's visiting his his wife, his estranged wife in Los Angeles. He's attending a Christmas party at the skyscraper where she works, where it's um, taken over by a group of terrorists. Um, but then they actually turn out to be thieves, posing as terrorists so they can steal $640 million worth in untraceable bearer bonds that are held in the building's vault. Um, and when they take over the, the building, um, Willis manages to escape. Uh, so the, the basic story is him, this guy, all alone trying to fight these terrorists. Um leader of which is Hans Gruber um, and again he's, he's quite quite a comic character mm. in a way um, this was I think Rickman's first big film role yeah. um, before that I mean obviously he's cla- he was classically trained did a lot of you know 
stage work, etc. Um, and it was that kind of um, that time in the eighties when every sort of British guy played the villain yeah. <laughs> in films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he plays him quite well. He's um, ruthless yet calm. Um, he never directly loses his temper. He pretends to be a reasonable guy, even when he kills Mister Takagi. You know, um, he's extremely intelligent, but he's boastful. He boasts about his education, his knowledge about business. You know, the magazines that he reads, etc. Um, he's got no remorse about killing people. He pretends like it's a normal, casual, everyday thing to do. But he's also got a very good sense of dark humour. Mm. Uh, but despite this, he's actually not liked by many people, including his own men. Yeah, yeah. As well, because uh, he's yeah. almost—it's almost like a John Lithgow thing. Yeah, in a way. He's, yeah. he's above he's, them, isn't he? He's got this air of superiority. Um, but yeah, he's, he's again. I think he's a perfect villain for that film. Yeah, and he pitches it, you know, really well. Like we say about John Lithgow and Cliffhanger. Um, it's not too over the top, but you know, like I say, he does provide some of the comedy as well. Um, some of the lines he has, um, and I think obviously he does add a lot to the film. Yeah, um, doesn't detract from the film. Uh, and I'd say that he's probably, you know, I think on most lists of villains, definitely top five. Yeah, and then, definitely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically this is the the role which kick-started yeah, Alan Rickman's yeah. feature film career, didn't it? Yeah. So, And what a good film to start off with. So, yeah. Um, well, my final antagonist is Hal 9000. And um, he's the main antagonist in the 1968 Stanley Kubrick film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, he's voiced by Canadian actor Douglas Ray. Um, and now it's, it's a very... I'm not going to go into full detail because 2001 A Space Odyssey is... There's multiple plots, but this plot is is um, two astronauts played by Keir Deloy and Gary Lockwood. Uh, they basically set off and they look for another inhabited, inhabitable planet. And how is the onboard computer system that basically runs everything? Um, I just think, like I said, I'm going to keep it short and simple, but how is this written and portrayed brilliantly and... Uh, the fact that he comes across as so twisted and so evil and he's a computer is just amazing to me. Um, listen, I know that he has his mission, but he starts to evolve and learn and he goes even as far to kill one of the crew members. He even attempts to kill Keir Delea. And just the just the tone alone is enough to send chills down his spine, just the way yeah. um, the way Douglas Rain says yeah, the words. It's, it's very kind of monotone computer yeah. voice, but... Yeah, it's it's sort of a stark warning against computerization and uh, artificial intelligence. You know, mm. you know what what happens if computers like in like in Terminator with Skynet? What happens when they become self aware and they it's can actually fear, start? Yeah, yeah, they can start learning and thinking for themselves. You know, at what point do then they start to um, to rise up against humans? I mean, uh, one scene, for example. Um, uh, this is at the point where Hal started to learn and he started to figure out that uh, Keir DeLeo and Gary Lockwood are, are trying to overthrow him almost. Uh, so they, they think that they're going to um, uh, outsmart him by going into one of the pods and speaking where he can't hear them. 
and um, it the, the film plays out like they have achieved that in outsmarting him, but then it's revealed that Hal can read their lips, and because he can't hear what they're saying, but he reads their lips and he knows what they're saying, and it's just that that really gets the point where he is super smart and he has outsmarted humans, and that is just a scary thing. Like I said, it's a very um, it's a big phobia for a lot of people, isn't it? And it's a big um, people are scared that one day computers yeah. are going to be able to out. out well, it's like now we you know we're trying to build computers that can learn and and uh, uh, have artificial intelligence, but then what happens when they exceed their programming and yeah. start to program themselves and themselves? And, and that's yeah. exactly what Hal does. I mean, even the the design of Hal, even though it's simple, it just works. Like it's yeah. just one little um, red light. Yeah. But it's 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 stable. It it, it almost pierces right through you because yeah. it's it's you. This light is used as what how can look through. Yeah, and he's, he's well, space is eye, isn't it? Yeah, and he's, he's that's all that is to represent it. And yeah. he's around. He's he's all around the um the the yeah. spaceship. Um, it's just that voice, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do <laughs> it that. It's literally it does send chills <laughs> up his spine because yeah. at that point you realise that how. Like I said, he's going to do whatever it takes to um, complete the mission, even if it means killing the crew members. But yeah, like I said, it's it's just the the way how Douglas Rain can do like with his performance can make yeah. that effect when he's just a voice. It's just amazing, and yeah, that's the reason why Hal's on my list. So right, well, I think that about does it. Yeah, it's been a long week. one, isn't it? yeah, yeah. Um, Thanks for joining us. Um, just check out our website, filmgeezers.com, for film reviews and other content. Uh, we'll be back again next week. You can check our Insta, Twitter, Facebook, uh, TikTok. Uh, handle is The Film Geezers. Uh, so that's all that's left to say to you. Thank you for joining us and hope to see you next yeah, week. Thank you very much. Goodbye.